exactly who wrote it but it's basically like buddhism beyond beliefs yeah and i know the one yeah it's a book about i mean not a lot of people think of meditation and buddhism as this uh religion with all sorts of religious type of stuff um but he was you know is making the case for buddhism without beliefs no one really does that with with christianity you don't necessarily think of it as that but i get a little bit from that quote of you know even if not as you know maybe it's worth following but yeah you want to read that quote yeah let me read the quote here if someone proved to me that christ is outside the truth and that in reality the truth were outside of christ then I should prefer to remain with Christ rather than with the truth. That's Dostoevsky. It's it's interesting because to me, Jesus is not necessarily outside of like a Christian worldview as a sage. Like he's not someone that's necessarily quoted outside of Christianity. Yeah. You know, he's not seen as the same light really in that way to me as like Socrates or, or Buddha. Um, it's like, why, why is that? I don't know. It's interesting. Like, even if it's not your belief, even if, you know, if it's not true, you know, from a, you know, biblical perspective or anything like that as still, a particularly set of wise, you know, principles to follow. Yeah. I, I think it's because people have, a, people get a sour taste in their mouth when they hear any reference to Christianity. Uh, and obviously that's a very bold and broad statement, but you know, I had this, it was interesting. You reminded me of something. I had a conversation I had with, <clears> I think it was an old ex actually, but uh, we were talking about, um, Christ, something he said that was really wise, and I think I quoted him or something. And I said, well, you know, that's similar to what Christ said, and he said this. And and she was pretty reasonable, but she, I remember her saying, like, you can't, you can't say that. Like, Christ didn't, he didn't actually say that. And I was like, okay, hold on a minute. You have no trouble when I say Gandalf said, you know, <laughs> um, not all tears are an evil. You have no trouble with me saying that, but you don't want me saying that Christ says something. And I was like, what's the difference there? It's like, they're let, let's even assume that they're both fictional characters. <laughs> what's wrong with me saying that? If I say, if I said to you, Harry Potter said this quote, you would never say, well, yeah, but well, let, let's just be sure. Let's be clear here that Harry Potter's not real, <laughs> right? Like you'd be yeah. ridiculous. Yeah. But uh, I don't know, man. People have this weird taste in their mouth when things come to Christianity sometimes and I feel like it is only a Christian thing because you, you wouldn't say that with, uh, I don't know, like pretty much any other religion. I think most people are, you know, prophets or fictional stories or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's weird how rare it is. I think of um, Seneca writing basically that whole, you know, use a line. If it's good, like, you know, regardless of who the author is, like if the line is good, if it's if it's wisdom, but we don't necessarily do that. I, I don't think people have the same reaction if it's quoting the Buddha, which is also, you know, a, a religion. Um, I don't know why that like, why is that? I think it's like the fundamentalist christians that uh well uh, i mean here's what i really think i guess is that um there is that christian fundamentalist view that you know the world is six thousand years old and yada 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 and i think evolution for the most part has proven that particular point wrong 
And so any reference to Christianity, I think a lot of people naturally associate that with the sort of anti-scientific view, which obviously I don't agree with. I think, uh, I mean, it's crazy because Nietzsche thought that Christ- Christians were so focused on truth that, you know, it led to science essentially and and killed itself in a sense, right? Because of the the dedication to truth. But but yeah, I don't know. I think I think that as soon as you mention Christ, people don't think about him like you would with Socrates or any other fictional. I mean, obviously he was he was a real person, but uh, as Jesus was, he was historically proven to be true, uh, to be real, as far as I know. Uh, the deeds that's a whole other thing. But we could say the same thing about Socrates, right? I mean. I don't know if people don't if people know this, but all these like crazy deeds that we have about Socrates, it was basically written by Plato. You know, he he wrote about it, and if you actually look into the academic debate on this, there's a lot of disagreement on whether or not that's real or not. They tend to say that yeah, Plato was pretty much representing him accurately, but there's not like full agreement on that. A lot of there's a lot of academics that think that it was somewhat fictional. They I think they all agree he he was somewhat fictional in uh, Plato's description. But um but yeah, it's weird how we don't we don't think about Socrates like that yet we do with Christ. Yeah, it's an, another interesting thing is how we tend to embellish things over time. Like in terms of Socrates probably how you know wise he was or the Buddha or any of these different like sages from history in reality, I mean, they probably weren't quite as sage-like. At least I assume. I assume that we embellish things over time. I mean, you go to someone's funeral. We're talking about the good things. We're talking about, you know, and then, and then from a from a memory standpoint, probably especially these people from thousands of years and stuff like that. Definitely. It seems, though, like I wonder a book... Like Christianity beyond beliefs <laughs> to me, and you know, I'm, I'm sympathetic. I, I consider myself a, a Christian and stuff like that, but it does seem that there'd be quite a bit of practical wisdom in there. Sure. If you, you know, if you parsed it out and stuff like that and, and wrote it in a way where it was like, this is someone teaching, you know, this was a, philosopher, which is, I've seen some people obviously, you know, consider Jesus that way. There's this book, uh, somebody I had on the podcast a long time ago, it was like the, the great philosopher or something like that. But it is, um, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to contemplate, like what would be in that book if it was a Christianity beyond beliefs. I think it would be similar to what Peterson did actually, which is he did a biblical series looking at the psychological uh, ideas behind the Bible. Uh, so he basically looked looked at the stories from a fictional perspective and tried to extract wisdom out from it. I think it'd be pretty similar to that. But a lot of the, you know, the funny thing people don't think about too is, you know, Christianity <clears throat> officially became a thing at a certain point in time, right? By the Roman emperor, uh, empire, essentially. But those stories, man, a lot of the stories in the Bible are way older than Christianity itself. Like the, you're talking like the flood, the flood story goes back a, as old as recorded history. It's so old. So it's hard to even look at a lot of the stories in the Bible and think of it as Christianity, as just Christian, because it's really not. They kind of predate, a lot of that stuff predates Christianity. It's just at, at a certain point in time, it quote, quote, became Christianity. But, um, but yeah, I mean like the, the I don't know, the flood story, you'd never think that would be people would have any issue with that if it didn't have the Christian label on it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Did you see the new, uh, Netflix series, like ancient apocalypse? I did, but I'll, I'll admit I, I watched, I half watched it while I was working. So, but it was interesting. Oh, okay. Yeah. How dare you? I know. I know. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it's good stuff in terms of, uh, it's funny, like we've we've talked in some of our conversations about uh, you have like pre-Socratic philosophers, you know, you get some people and then before that, it's just nobody. Yeah. <laughs> it's like Heraclitus, like 
before that, you know, basically there's no names. You really just don't right. have any clue of what was necessary. I mean, the stories continue like this, you know, oral tradition of parables and lessons, but you don't necessarily know, you know, specifically who it originated from and all that. Yeah. And I think that's a shame because, you know, the more I think about this, I think, <clears throat> I think human beings are so dumb. Like I, I really do. Probably going to get pushed back on this, but like, if you think about it, like, we never sit down and fully think through a solution to something. It never happens. It's like, like what do you mean? Most of it's most most things are trial and error. So we learn through experience. We learn through failure. Like if you're gonna design something, okay. So say you're gonna design a bridge. It's not like one person came along one day and started coming up with all these theories and and practices for how to perfectly design a bridge. No, it was like some guy that was trying to cross a river one day and he was like, oh, shit, a log. And then he threw the log across and then he walked halfway over and it was rotted in the middle. So he fell down through the middle of it and he said, oh, shit, maybe next time I should check and make sure that it's strong in the middle. Like it was trial and error. It wasn't like – like there's a there's a hint of ingenuity in there. But predominantly it's like, yeah, this is going to work. And then someone tries it and it doesn't work. And then they're like, okay, why didn't that work? And then we do that over thousands of years and we end up with the civilization we have today. But I, th- I think I think we're a lot dumber than, than we give ourselves credit for as a, as a species. Yeah, you're not going to get any pushback from, from me on that. <laughs> and I, I put myself in that, in that same category. Um, but it does seem like I've, I've thought about this of wisdom. How only really a few of us, it seems, have the wisdom to learn from other people's trial and error. Oh, God, yeah. You know, there's this thing of where, yes, trial and error, you know, we navigate and we bump our head against things and then reflect on it and decide not to do that again. But there is a lot of wisdom in just someone that sees that person bump their head and is like, hey, I just saw John, you know, have some trouble here. He like uh, was walking across there and the log was rotted in the middle. Yeah. I'm going to make a mental note of that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, you don't necessarily have to experience the hardship of everything you know, there is this thing you can just learn from others and from history and just like even regardless of books, even just observing, you know, what's going on in the in the world and the people around you. It takes a lot of humility to do that, right? You have to completely let your ego go and be like, you know, d- despite the best way I think to, on how to do something, maybe I should look around and see if someone else was just as quote, quote, smart as I was. And tried it and and failed at it. Uh, it. It is a hard thing, though. I got to admit to learn from other people's mistakes. And I suppose in some ways that's why we have practices like standard practices. It's because um, it's you have a lot of people that tried a lot of things. Some of it worked. The things that worked led to survival and eventually flourishing. Something like that. It's like okay, well, what practices led to that, and then. Now we have some idea for things to try, but it's still, it's, it's weird because you can, you can tell a child the perfect way to live, but until they kind of go through life and navigate certain things and realize it's like, they're never going to achieve that. It's like telling people money's not going to give you happiness. It's like, what are the, what's the first thing people do? It's like, okay, yeah, but I'd like to know that for myself first. Let's make as much money as I possibly can. And then once you get a certain salary, you realize actually... It doesn't really work like that. No matter how much money I'm making, I'm still going to have some of these issues. It's it's funny to me, though, as you talk about money and like material stuff. You know, uh, I guess the stereotypical thing, what do we call it? like the rat race or something like that? You know, you get in, you're doing this and you spend your whole life for something and then you, you realize it didn't necessarily provide you the meaning and fulfillment that you thought it would. But if you pick up a book, you could read many, many people like harping on uh, about that. You could just 
take their word for it. <laughs> <laughs> you could just say you could. Yeah, I, I just did an episode earlier on um, on Epicurus it's about like you know living for pleasure and stuff like that. So that's a bit on my mind, and I'm um, I'd say more open these days of the like the wisdom of of just not doing things that make you miserable, you know, or just like, I don't know, maybe we could get into it a bit, but it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, you know, how do we just like take people's word for it? Mm. Cause I mean, you could read it and just, what does Socrates know? You know, or like, what does Jesus know? Like, I mean, we, how do we get in this place of where we think that we know more and maybe we think today's different. Yeah, I mean that's faith essentially. You know, you you see something that uh that someone's telling you it's going to work and you just got to <laughs> commit to it kind of until you yeah. see a little bit of progress, but you know what's what's interesting as well though is that yeah, I never thought of it this from a philosophy as a way of life perspective, but there's definitely dead ends, dead not dead ends. Yeah, I guess dead ends. There's dead ends in in things particularly, for example, in engineering, if you look at the use of fossil fuels, we're, we're pretty much at the end of that in terms of efficiency. Like, obviously, you can always get incrementally better, but there's certain roads that you go down where it actually does become a dead end. You can't improve upon it anymore. And then you're left with trying to find a different and better solution. And it's like, like I'm sure societies, cultures have went through that where, you know, they decide on certain practices that we're going to do certain ways of life. And eventually, you know, it doesn't work out for you um, either because the tribe next to you is doing better and then they kind of take you over. Or maybe it's just not long. It's not considering the long term. So there, like, there certainly is the case. Like, we shouldn't presume that there's always progress to be made in certain directions, and that maybe we wouldn't be better at some time. Maybe back stepping a little bit and then going down a different road. I don't know. Yeah. How do you think that like connects in terms of um, daily life? Like, what are the dead ends? Like, are there dead ends that we? just ram up against over and over as, as human beings. Yeah, I would say like so. I want, yeah. What comes to mind for you? I got one that just popped in my head a little bit. I mean, I think, I think some work for some people, so, some put it to this, put it to you this way. Some people have this goal of becoming a manager in a certain field and they get hired by a company and they spend some time there and then they find out that for um, whatever reason, it could be something as simple as the, the your manager, your boss is pretty young and he does his job really well. Or maybe he's like friends with the CEO, like he's never getting fired. So now all of a sudden your opportunity for advancement, it's not going to happen at all until your boss retires, which might be in 10, 15 years. And so it's very easy to get into a dead end in a, in a job. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Or even just find your way towards something that makes you miserable. Yeah. To a certain extent. I know we've talked about the idea of, um, you know, perception and it depends necessarily how you look at it. There is a, a thing of, maybe some privilege in terms of having the flexibility to, to have a bit of agency there. But, um, something that came up in, in this book I was reading on Epicureanism is, uh, deliberately thinking about like good moments in your life, like good times. You went on a vacation or, you know, just like the nice things that you've done and, experienced in your life but we don't necessarily do that that much it doesn't seem like you know when you think of uh, the trauma or the difficulties uh, 
you know, those, those things that we're not happy about, those are typically the ones that we replay or that we go back and visit. Now, maybe there's some sort of reason to do that. Maybe you're working with a, you know, in therapy or something like that. And maybe you're trying to discover something and, you know, work through. But a lot of times I bet most people are just going back and maybe reliving some suffering, reliving an unpleasant experience where it might be wiser to do what Epicurus is talking about of, you know, if we're going to relive something from the past, you know, a good experience, something that's wonderful, something that we can appreciate and be happy about. Yeah. I think we tend to focus on the negative in our past, the trauma, the bad things. I think it's a psychological thing where, you haven't quite figured out why that happened or what that means or the lesson behind it. And I think you get, I think we get trapped into that because if you haven't figured out why something bad happened, you don't know how to avoid it in the future. And so you can get caught. We, I think we do this subconsciously. We get caught in these cycles of thinking about the trauma the bad things that happen, we can't get it off our minds. I think it's because we we don't know why it happened, and we don't know we don't know what we did wrong. That and sometimes we didn't do anything wrong. Sometimes life just kind of happens. But that you can get caught in that, and which actually points to a very interesting thing. That one of the best ways to deal with that, if 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 you're struggling with something in the past, by the way, man, write it down. Like in as much excruciating detail as you can, write down everything that that happened uh, in that particular event and then try and write down how you can avoid that in the future. <clears throat> that that's unbelievably helpful, man. I did that a couple of years ago and it was just it like I rarely think about the past in a bad way now. Like really? probably never. It's it's weird. I I got to quote your boy uh Dostoevsky here though as you were talking he said, we only like to count our troubles. We don't like to count our, our happiness. Yeah. Um, you know, when you're doing that, was it specifically to not necessarily maybe figure something out, but was it specific to, I, I want to get clarity on, on, you know, what I think about this or something like that? Like, is there a, a wise and an unwise way to do that. Yeah. Well, I think, I think what happens is this is based on my own experience, but you get caught in these thoughts of this happened and that happened. And it, I kind of think of it like just like a bunch of yarn in your head. That's very tangled up. And when you write what you're doing, this is what writing does period. What you're doing when you write is you kind of take that yarn and you make a sweater out of it, right? You make something, that's actually tangible and, and useful and coherent and organized. And if you do that with something in the past, what you start to do is you start to really piece together everything that led up to that, how everything happened. And then if you, if you do that concretely, you will actually start to see that, okay, maybe that happened because I was a little bit naive about that. Or, or even if, even if the conclusion is what happened was not up to me, that's still wisdom. And it's hard to know that until you've really detailed and explored the whole essence of the story. And really it is, it's a story, right? It's like you're writing, you're writing a story that happened, something that's tragic and terrible. And, uh, and you, you are trying to figure out the lesson behind that so that it doesn't bug you or mess you up in the future again. Yeah. I think you'll like this. I was thinking of you when I read this, um, Epicurus advised, or maybe it was not him, but somebody else in that particular school said that you should write your own letter about the meaning of ingratitude 
So it's like basically writing like why it's a problem. Why is ingratitude a problem? And that seems to be hmm. there's there's some wisdom in there of of taking the opposite of something just for clarity. Yeah. You know, because we, we had an episode on gratitude and sometimes talking directly about something doesn't quite capture it. But by doing the opposite, you know, what is ingratitude? What are the perils of ingratitude? Why? Why? And I think you could easily, you know, if you wrote a couple of pages about that, it would be easy to do because uh, it's an easy way to make your life miserable. Yeah, that's actually one way that you can <clears throat> implement some of that negative thought pattern in a positive way. So you, mm. you can take, for example, something bad that happened in the past. And if you can source that back to what you did wrong, you can consciously think that if I do that wrong again, if I'm negligent or ignorant in a particular way, this could happen again. And what you do there is you use the fear to motivate you. And actually, Andrew, Andrew, Human, uh, sorry, Andrew Huberman, he's a neuroscientist. Do you know him? Yeah, I, I listen to him sometimes. Yeah, he's a cool guy, but he, he's... He basically said that um, the latest research on this is that fear is, is a better motivator than some fear of becoming worse is a better motivator than drive to become better. So if you get up in the morning and you think, I'm going to be very productive if I get up in the morning, that's not as motivating as if I sleep in, I might lose my job. Mm. So you got to be careful with that, of course. But yeah, yeah. Is that different? Um, like, is there a spectrum? You know, I mean, did he say anything about like that might be different for some people? And I'm sure you know, there is not some. I'm sure there is, yeah. yeah. But I don't think the studies are that detailed. Traditionally on that. speaking, yeah, I'm sure yeah. there is. I kind of almost want to go back to this, like Christianity as a philosophy of life. Yeah, let's do it. You know, man, is there like one thing? I think of, um, I love this one parable about the adulterer. I think maybe I've, I brought it up before. I apologize if I, if so, but it's, um, you know, where everybody's basically gathering in the town center to stone this adulterer. And as like these theologians comment on it, you know, they say that, Jesus, if he said basically, don't do it, he was kind of in a bind, you know, for, for this. If he didn't say anything, you know, he's basically in a bind for this. And he ends up saying, yeah, go ahead. Let the person who is without sin cast the first stone, you know, and as the parable goes, they all dropped their stone and went back home one by one starting with the eldest. And it's like, as you said, you know, humility earlier, you know, like the thing of, um, so weird, like the idea of humility. Of, I mean, he basically poses this question, which is a self reflection question to think back to yourself. And it, it spurred, change you know and i mean it reminds me of it as you're talking about like that research on fear might be more motivating than you know the positive you know it's got to be some sort of thing like back at us some sort of reflection of you know what influences us to <laughs> potentially change and it's like at the root of change, it seems like some sort of version of humility is even required. Cause I, like that example that you said, and I mean, you were mindful of like, not to take it too far, but I could lose my job. I, I, I better get up. I need to get on time and, you know, fill in the blank with whatever it is. There is a bit of humility and truth that is required even in that example, like this is possibly, this could possibly happen. 
but we don't like the word humility. I don't know what else you, you call it really, mm-hmm. but, uh, we don't necessarily care for that word. It seems. Yeah. We, we all struggle with that. I think, I think we struggle with the ego. <clears throat> yeah. It's crazy. Uh, it just reminds me of something sad guru said. I think we might have, I think I might, we might have talked about this before, but he said that if you imagine the cosmos and then you zoom in a little bit closer and you see the galaxy, you zoom in closer, you see the solar system, you zoom in, you see the earth, you zoom in, you see, let's say the US, you zoom in a little bit further, you see Florida, you zoom in, you see wherever you are in the world. And, uh, <laughs> You zoom right in basically to the individual person and the individual person thinks that they are as big as the cosmos. <laughs> and that's the, pro- and that's the problem. And he's got a point there, man. Like we all, yeah. and it's, it's hard not to, because I only see things through my eyes. Like that's all I see. I get up in the morning. I'm not particularly worried about what you're doing in the morning. It's like, no, I got stuff to do. I got to get up. I got to feed myself. I got to do this. I got to do that. And that can give you the perception that the universe, the cosmos revolves around you. And (laughs) (laughs) the, uh, the, um, I, (laughs) I, I gave a talk like recently I was telling you about, and it kind of included that bit of bit of it in there. Like that's also not a for most of us, that's not like a fun pill to swallow <laughs> either. <laughs> it sucks. Um, yeah. But I think no I want to get your thoughts on on pleasure though, and connected to this. I mean you're you're the strong Stoic guy. <laughs> sure. You know what I mean? Like it's, and I mean, I, I, I get that. And I, uh, I mean, I, I see wisdom and value and that as well, but it seemed like even just understanding your place in the cosmos, like as you were just talking about, like that exact example can be a way to just, let's just relax a little bit. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you're not, mm center to the unfolding of of the universe you know like we can relax a little bit like the epicurean thing of uh just appreciate what you have you maybe you don't need to go and do anything like can i've heard you talk about like appreciating your cup of coffee like that's like an epicurean thing that's like Mm -hmm. a pleasure of just taking the time to intentionally and deliberately appreciate and take pleasure in a cup of coffee or whatever that is for someone, man, we can forget to do that. We think we've got to go, you know, keep the, keep the earth and the, and the planet, you know, everything in order or something. Yeah. You, you can, this is interesting for sure that you can kind of get pleasure out of these basic things. I, I don't think, I don't think some amount of pleasure in day-to-day life is unstoic. I really don't think. I, I think it's something that they didn't they didn't focus on that and talk too much about it. It's more of a matter of priority, I think, because obviously the Epicureans' pleasure was it was the good, right? And Stoicism, it was it was more about service, I guess you could say, in a single word. And um, but yeah, I mean, I I, I say this often because people seem to think that if they come into stoicism you know they can't eat cake and they can't do this and they can't do that it's like let's back up a minute here the stoics were people (laughs) you know if you look at anyone who is an actual stoic not that they say they're stoic but that that they embody the philosophy they're going to incorporate a little bit of pleasure in there like you have to this whole delayed gratification thing that's what leads to success. And they, they have that. That's well documented in science that delayed gratification leads to success. But that doesn't mean that you don't nibble on a few things on the journey. You kind of have to, right? Yeah, I think an, an interesting point is um, like Marcus Aurelius taking in a, a nice wine 
you know, he's writing in his, his journal about that and remembering that it's rotten grapes. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know, like the Epicureans where I, I see the wisdom in, in doing that, but there is wisdom in just focusing on appreciating it. It's a pleasure. Sure. And you know what? This wine is good. Just like your cup of coffee. You don't need to necessarily like downplay it. Ah, this is just, you know, ground up coffee beans or no, it is. A, it is a special thing. Yeah. It, it is a pleasure. It is not um, necessarily needed, but there is wisdom if you have it to maybe just focus on the appreciation. Um, and obviously there's a balance. Like I, I get the aspect of both. Cause you can get to the thing of now you're clinging, grasping and you need this right cup of coffee. But if you have it, there is something of, uh, like I get the idea more so now of just like, this is pleasure and it's good mm-hmm. for sure, man. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think you're right. I think there is a balance there because I think, in fact, they sort of complement each other because you can drink a cup of coffee and the first sip, you have a lot of appreciation for it. And then the second sip, you say, well, water is also good and this is just coffee. And then the third sip, you could say, actually, this is really freaking good. Like, I think there can be a balance (laughs) there and they can actually complement each other because what happens if you – it's almost like when you recognize that you don't need something, you have a different sense of appreciation for it. This this is interesting. I'd like to know your I'd I'd like to know your thoughts on that too because people talk about this with relationships sometimes. People say, you know, the best relationships are when you accept that you don't need the other person but you're both voluntarily choosing to be together. Mm. What do you think of that? Yeah. Yeah, we I mean we've spoke about love before and things like that and love I've heard it said traditionally in the west we define love as almost um an unhealthy clinging and grasping yeah and stuff like that but really many of these people like i like theologians like anthony DeMallo talks about love there's no control there's no you know the, there's like freedom in in agency in in love you know um so so interesting the uh One more like Marcus Aurelius example. Let me, I want to get your thoughts on this and take it back to to that or wherever, wherever you want, obviously. You know how the Stoics wouldn't necessarily use the word pleasure. Not something, you know, rival schools and all of that. But they are minimizing pain. Yeah. That does seem to be a very central thing. When you think about Marcus Aurelius journaling to himself about meeting difficult people, that whole philosophical exercise is all about minimizing the pain from that, minimizing the suffering. And I mean, there are many other examples. So it's like, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe you wouldn't say that they're for pleasure per se, but they're not for pain. They are for minimizing pain. Of course, of course, and th- this this is another thing that I come to heads with a lot of, uh, let's say, contemporary Stoics, because the whole thing of, well, life is suffering. It's like, well, the Stoics thought that you could change your perception on that, and it wouldn't be suffering. It's like. Let's make sure we're clear about a few terms here. We use these terms very interchangeably, and I've I've realized that we need to be clear what we mean by such things because I would say that the Stoics were against, you could say, unnecessary unnecessary suffering. They were against spiritual suffering, and they thought that that was probably a lot worse than maybe some unpleasantness that you have to experience to get up early in the morning or this and that, right? But, of course, they wanted to reduce pain. 
why wouldn't yeah. that be a bad thing? Again, I think it's a matter of priority. It's like, what are we really here for? And I, I do absolutely think, I mean, I, if, if you have, if you're wearing some shoes that are like blistering your feet, it's like, is the stoic thing to just keep them on and consider that an indifferent? Like, no, you, you buy a new pair of shoes yeah. and you get on with your life. And I, I, I don't know why that there, this, there seems to be an issue with this, with, uh, I guess just some confusion around what what that means, you know, suffering and pain and and unnecessary suffering, all these words that I think we use that we have to be careful what we really mean by that or we get confused. And it's like the preferred and different thing. Cup of coffee. Um, well, now, refresh my memory. Preferred and different, does that have to be lead to potentially a more virtuous action or is it, could a cup of coffee be a preferred indifferent? Sure. Sure. Yeah. Couldn't it? Cause I thought it was, um, you mean, it, I thought I remember it has to be reading that a preferred and it's definitely like an indifferent, but can you like money is an indifferent. So I guess a cup of coffee would be an indifferent, but you can appreciate an indifferent, just like that shoe example you're talking about. Yes, it's an indifferent. But of course, if you've got another pair of shoes to put them on, put them on. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's like the and to me, like that connects with you maybe wouldn't use the word pleasure, but it's yeah, the absence of unnecessary suffering is good. Yeah. And they and I think that the Stoics bring that up often too is is appreciating and, and gratitude. Again, they don't use these terms specifically. Yeah. So I yeah. think this is where a lot of the confusion is. They, they wouldn't say that. But if you think about it, that's really what they meant. It's like, you know, and I I, I get in trouble for this sometimes because I, I, as you know, I bring in a lot of Christian terminology and religious terminology to try and make sense of it from a Stoic perspective. And that causes a lot of people to get uncomfortable. But... You know, I, for example, I just did an episode on redemption, and that's that's a very religious term. But if you think about what yeah. that really means, it's like you're being saved from sin or error. It's like there doesn't necessarily need to be a supernatural element in there when you're talking about being saved. I mean, you can save yourself from from falling into alcoholism. Is, is that not – if you choose to do that, is that not a, a form of redemption if you used to be an alcoholic? Like why does it have to be a third party? Um, I don't went down a bit of a rabbit hole there, but yeah, I, I think that a lot of these terms, you know, um, we do have to be careful with it, but I think it's more beneficial for us to try and understand what they really meant as opposed to using the exact words they used. And sometimes it can be beneficial to, to overlap some of these philosophies and religions because you can, you can understand something like redemption, for example, easier if you think about it through a Christian lens. If you're just a stoic and you have no idea what Christianity is, you think about redemption, it's like you have no idea what, what that means at all. If you think about it through Christianity, you can kind of dissect it and break it down and take it apart. And so that's where I, I know you and I really agree on this part of philosophy in general is that so much overlap. And sometimes you can understand something better through stoicism or through Buddhism that you can understand through the other. That's fine. Yeah, I 100% agree. Like, I've always thought that there's some people that maybe just write something on a particular topic that is very clear, very useful, and that lasts. Like Epicurus, he writes these things about appreciation, appreciating what you have, you know, not want, not wanting what you don't. He's got these... um you know, letters where he wrote about how to think about death and these things have continued on and people have quoted him. And it's the same thing, like across the board, I think of the, uh, and sometimes maybe I, I think these parables are a bit more lasting, you know, like the uh, many Buddhist parables, but one that really comes up over and over is the second arrow, you know, where it's like that the first arrow is the pain second arrow is the mental suffering, you know, the story that we put to that. There are some of these things that are quoted even outside of, you know, that particular tradition, 
But yeah, I do agree in terms of, uh, yeah, obviously Christianity and things like that. There are, there are some principles that obviously show up in other traditions, but it's kind of a greater level of focus hmm. in that. One thing would be like mercy, redemption, forgiveness, you know, whatever you would want to call it. There's definitely a, uh, a greater focus, it seems. Yeah, yeah, and 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 also, and also, what it like? What inputs are going into that? So, for the redemption thing, like there is this element in Christianity where there's redemption by God. So there's a part of it I think that's by your own conscience, but then there's there's definitely an element there of you have to be redeemed by your Savior, in a sense, and so. You, you kind of have two inputs there, right? You have your individual conscience and you have, uh, let's say, a divine deity. But then if you take away the deity part, you people do this psychologically all the time. You you redeem yourself despite your, your, uh, your failures. I mean, what else is that? You're going to save yourself from errors. Like, like you're so – we're all so imperfect and we all miss the mark and we all say rude things. Sometimes we mean it. Sometimes we're unaware of it. It's like, how do you live with yourself? It's like, well, when you know better, you do better. And what is that if not yeah. redemption, despite your insufficiencies? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. The uh, um, popular Seneca quote, you know, it's like progress towards wisdom, like uh, becoming a better friend to myself. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. And it's uh, to me, it, it connects with what you're saying. You know, it's like forgiving yourself, you know, having a bit of a grace, grace for yourself. But it does seem like, you know, as the something we've been talking about in this conversation of pleasure. You know, being a friend to yourself is probably not necessarily doing the things that make you miserable. I don't know. To me, maybe I'm, I'm stretching here a bit. But it does seem like there is some sort of thing to bring in your boy Dostoevsky again of probably this. This is really like one of my favorite quotes of uh, and I'm still going to butcher it. But it's something like, you know, happiness is basically knowing the root of unhappiness. You know, it's like, how do you just find out what doesn't make you happy? Can you stop doing that? Yeah cool. <laughs> that seems like being a friend to yourself, you know, it's like, uh, um, but maybe the pleasure is a weird word. I don't know. Maybe there's a synonym that could be used, but I don't know. Yeah. Pleasure does kind of give off the sensualist vibe for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but it is, it's like, it is, it is pleasure. I even don't like that word. I, I think it comes off too sensualistic, but I yeah. don't know if there's a better word like joy or I don't know. But I mean, again, if you if you look at the if you look at a lot of the Stoic stuff, man, they bring that up regularly to find joy and 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 derive pleasure from the basic things in life, but also recognizing that you don't need it. It's very interesting. Yeah. And I mean, they talk about tranquility as yeah. a a word that shows up in different schools. But it's about, you know, what leads to tranquility? Is it around being around people you don't like, doing things you don't like, doing things that make you miserable? No. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's yeah. sometimes tranquility. Like maybe it's not that difficult. Maybe we make things more difficult than it needs to be of just, yeah, I don't know. Even the, ep the episode we did in terms of gratitude and being grateful it just makes your life a bit better. You know, it's about fo focusing on, mm -hmm. it's basically straight what Epicurus is talking about, focusing on what you have, not what you don't, appreciating what you have, like understanding what is actually necessary, Yeah, you know, to live a life. It's about like just not being, trying not to be miserable. Let me ask you this though. Do you think, because I, I had this thought too about extremes on gratitude. Do you think that, if you do that too much, which I don't think any of us struggle with, <laughs> I think <laughs> yeah, we yeah. tend to focus on what we don't have. But but do you think in theory that 
if you were to be, let's say, overly grateful or grateful for everything you wake up in the morning, you're always grateful. Do you think that could actually have a negative consequence? Yeah. <laughs> you probably wouldn't have too many friends. Yeah. Like you annoy, annoy the crap out of people. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, uh, um, That's interesting. But I... But it's uh But there can be a thing of where I think being grateful you could call it maybe tranquility. You can probably find some sort of place and I would imagine you know sages and wise people are in this category where there's not these big swings, you know, these highs and these lows. There's still going to be I mean, there's still, you know, the Dalai Lama and Thich Nhat Hanh and many of these people talk about, you know, there's still suffering, but the suffering doesn't necessarily, nobody knows they're suffering. You know, there's still a bit of tranquility. There's a bit of joy that's still yeah. there. But if it's, you know, as you were describing it, you know, the overly joyful gratitude person like seeing the silver lining and in everything yeah it's like shut up yeah it doesn't always doesn't (laughs) always sit well in the work environment (laughs) but you know what yeah it's so true man it's like just shut up man can can we just all agree that this sucks right now (laughs) there's some benefit in that but to get back to what you mentioned about the highs and the lows because that's something else that huberman huberman talks about which is fascinating uh that that you do have to be careful of your highs so that you don't get too low. So when you're talking about extreme forms of pleasure, things like, you know, jumping off a, a bridge or something like that for the thrill, these, what he would call these heights in dopamine, what happens is if you have too many high peaks, you, your dopamine eventually has to come down, but it doesn't go to baseline. It goes below baseline. And so mm. the the people that I think you're experiencing or that you know about that are tranquil, that have that tranquility, they have that – they have kind of mastered that um, that dopamine base level because I guess your dopamine base level can rise. But if you engage too much in those really thrilling experiences or, or – yeah, well, I guess thrilling experiences where you get these big peaks in dopamine, you get, you get a steep drop after. But – we, we, we never did talk about Goggins at all, did we? But because um, I started after I listened to that podcast episode, I started ice bathing in the morning. Nice. So because I heard Rogan say he does three minutes in the morning and he hates it. And I was like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to do it. So I did a little bit before, but I bought I bought one outside. And uh, oh, nice. So it's basically sitting on my bridge and I filled it up with water and there's about an inch thick of ice. I have to beat down every morning before I get into it. And uh there's no video on this, so I'm just going to show you, but that's pretty much the setup. Nice. I don't know if you can see nice. that, but yeah, it's basically just a tub outside on my bridge filled with water, and I get up in the morning, and I sit into it, and it's crazy, but there does seem to be a thing where if you put yourself through a bit of suffering, you can actually become happier the rest of the day. The weird thing for me, I, I wonder... I don't know, maybe for another conversation, but this is interesting to me. It's like pleasure and pain. I mean, they're almost not too far apart. (laughs) I bet you there's some, some sort of pleasure from that. Dude, so much. Right? Yeah. But it's also pain. You know, people talk about like to, to use a generic example you know, going to the gym, exercising, doing this. I mean, this is, there's like complete pleasure in that. There's also pain. Um, but that's where it's weird. And from the Stoics, as we'll be talking about, like the virtue is the only good, pleasure is only good. Well, I think probably most Stoics, at least I think so, being virtuous is actually pleasurable. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, how are we not saying the same thing here? You know, pleasure is the only good. Virtue is the only good. I mean, it all depends on your definition and meaning of these things. Um, yeah. And it's, 
you know, it's just not as to me, these things are just not as far apart as we might think or not as just independent. That particular thing, getting an ice bath is not just solely pain, period, dot. Mm hmm. Yeah, for sure. Weird. It it is weird though cuz you know, I get up in the morning and there is a part of you that like there's a part of me that wants to go and do it. And there's probably a bigger part that yeah. doesn't want to go and do it. <laughs> but but you get up yeah. and you look outside and it's freaking freezing outside, right? And you're looking at the thick ice on top that you got to beat down with your foot before you can even get into the thing. And it's like you get in. I don't know, man. It's just it is in a sense there is a bit of pleasure coming from it of like just strength just the strength to do that yeah. you know cuz i i often think about probably weirdly cuz i don't i don't think a lot of people do this but i think about my ancestors a lot because i i come from a a very long line of fishermen and they they would get up in the morning and go to work really early and go into the cold and so, like, when I'm getting up in the morning and I'm thinking I got to go in this ice bath, you know, I'm thinking to myself, all my ancestors did that all day, worked in the cold. And if I can't do it for three minutes, you know, I don't know. I should probably just get up and do it. You know what I mean? Like, here I am <laughs> yeah. sleeping in this heated place that you had firewood and it was always freezing in the night. And then they'd get up. They'd get up in their cold house. And then go out in colder weather, working with their bare hands in freezing temperatures, hauling up things from the ocean, getting wet in freezing weather. Like, and I can't sit in there for three minutes. Like, I don't know. I think I think about trying to make my ancestors proud a yeah. lot, but it's a weird thing. <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's so fascinating. We'll we'll have to wrap it up, but we'll maybe we'll have to make a note to continue that. But seeing yeah. uh. Like the span of of history, I, you know, I'm a fan of uh, the survival shows like Alone and stuff like that. And um, the last person who won Alone, the lady said she's not a fan of the term wilderness living, you know, or some something along those lines. Because it's, you know, she said much of human history, this was just living, period, <laughs> you know, and it's. It's good also um, from the sense of maybe pride that might come, you know, how proud you might feel you go do something. And then it's like you remember, oh, yeah, for <laughs> my ancestors, this was just living. Yeah. There was not even any sort of other way. What is so, you know, so it's like you can get a, I don't know, both both sides of it or something or some sort of clear picture, it seems. It's so fascinating. It's harder, though, the the more, let's say, successful you get in life. It, it, it's, it gets easier to justify comfort. But I think the consequences of that are so dire. Like if you think about getting up in the morning and going out into an ice bath, <clears throat> there's no real need for any of us to do that. Like Why? Like I'm not doing any, I'm not making any work. There's a, a, a lot of psychological benefits, but just thinking of it practically, like you think about 200 years ago, one of my ancestors getting up in the middle of the night to go fishing in the cold. He did it because he had a huge motivating force. Let's feed the family. Let's stay alive. <clears throat> yeah. Right? So it's so easy when you have that, <laughs> say easy, I, I use that lightly because obviously it was harsh times. But what I mean is that as you get more access to comfort, it gets harder and harder to voluntarily suffer. But the truth is, is that you need that voluntary suffering in order to be happy. You, you can't do without it. Like I, I, I decided long ago, there's never going to be a time in my life where I'm not going to be exercising. Like I'm going to be yeah. miserable. Even though, and believe me, man, most days I don't want to go in. But... If I stop yeah. doing that, God damn, I'm going to be the underground man in like a week. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and even maybe as a, as a part two or whatever, whatever we're calling any, anything in the future, but it's like the voluntary suffering, but it's also like voluntary suffering and pleasure. Mm. You know, it's like, 
it's all in there. But I mean, we're, I get what you mean in terms of voluntary suffering, but it's, it's not just suffering. Like there is a pleasure yeah. in it. If you can muster the thing, it's like, because you have to voluntarily, like you said, you don't from a comfort thing, you don't uh, necessarily have to do it. So it's just a voluntary, what in the world do you call it? We'll figure it out next time. (laughs) (laughs) To be continued. All right.